Howdy, and welcome to the show. Cooper's Code examines a legal issue and hits the highlights, so we all achieve the best results for our clients. I'm Miles Cooper, and with today's guest, Kent Claude, we will be discussing embracing and using change, fighting smarter rather than harder, and facing our fears. In short, ways to be a Jedi lawyer. Before we get into today's topic, a few words about Cooper's LLP. We at Cooper's are committed to thought leadership, developing the best talent, and honing skills through learning, practice, trial, and the relentless pursuit of justice for consumers. With lawyers licensed in California, Oregon, and Washington, we're available for free strategic consultation on cases and accept referrals and trial co-counsel opportunities. For more information, visit our website at coopers.law or email us at podcast at coopers.law. Well, Ken, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So today we're talking a little bit about Jedi and how their experience and their approach can illuminate our approach in the law. Do you have any experience with Star Wars? I do. I'm a big fan of Star Wars. I have been since probably age 10. I was not allowed to see the original movie in 1977 because I was nine and my parents thought it was too scary. So I had to wait till I was 10 and it had come back to the movie theater. But since age 10, for sure. How do you incorporate any of those concepts that the Jedi use into your law practice? Broad topic, but a a point from which to discuss. Yeah, uh, my understanding of the Jedi mythos or Jedi philosophy is that it's like sort of a mashup of various strands of Buddhism, Taoism, maybe even Christianity or medieval chivalry or Zoroastrianism and where one begins and the other ends, I don't know, but I think it's an interesting uh, lens through which to look at not only how we live our lives, how we do our jobs, but how we uh, think about some of the larger issues of life and death and the universe. I remember some of the references that George Lucas made to Joseph Campbell and the power of myth and the hero with a thousand faces as inspirations for the storyline and concept and those always stuck with me in the approach that you use for your practice how do you feel about change when it occurs in a case well change is uh manifest in a lot of different ways and when i was looking at your outline and thinking about change the thing that came to mind for me is changes in the staffing of a case which are maybe um The thing that is most anxiety producing to me historically in my practice, and especially uh, having worked at a larger plaintiff's firm, when we may have paralegals or associates who are pulled in several different directions, and we are all sort of fighting for associate time or paralegal time or consultant time, the changes in staffing are something that I've had to navigate a lot in my practice, how to bring people into a case, how to get them up to speed, how to accept the fact that a staff member is leaving the team to be assigned to a case that has more pressing needs. And that's primarily how I thought about change when I saw your outline. And I don't know necessarily what the Jedi way of um, expressing or dealing with that is other than that change as a simplistic truism, but change is a constant and we have to sort of roll with the punches in a non-attached, non-grasping way, (laughs) to use the Buddhist catchphrase, I guess. Let me ask you a question that vein in going into the practice of a case itself. 
have you ever been at a deposition where it was expected to go a certain way and it did absolutely and in that avenue of change how did you engage with that situation certainly when it is one of our our clients and something comes up in a deposition that we didn't know about before the deposition that can be incredibly stressful and the interpersonal stress of having to discuss it with the client during a break in the deposition is a big part of that stress. We all know from our practice that uh, when we learn things unexpectedly in the context of a deposition where there's a court reporter and everyone is under oath and it's maybe being video recorded as well, that can be really problematic and really stressful. It's important in that setting, especially to take a deep breath and think about the big picture of life, the universe, and everything, and not become too wrapped up in minor setbacks involving some fact I didn't know about my client. And that's the way I try to look at it. I can't say I'm always successful in looking at it that way or dealing with it that way, but that's what I strive for. That makes a lot of sense. I think they have made reference to this in a prior podcast. I think back to a lawyer I read about who approached every piece of evidence, every deposition, every document, as if this was the only thing that that lawyer had to be able to prove the case, how would that person approach it? And in that vein, when a witness, say a doctor or a PMK or some other person who you're taking does something that you're not expecting, how would you shift with that? Well, I can think of examples in which the change that happens suddenly in a deposition can be not terrifying, but really exhilarating. For example, taking a deposition of a defense expert and realizing mid-deposition that a defense attorney wrote large portions of the defense expert report and then delving into that for the next two or three hours of the deposition. Those are great examples of sort of the thrill of battle, I think, in the, the adrenaline-fueled fight that can be fun and change in the best sense of change. Or maybe another example involving a defense person, most knowledgeable witness, when the defendant says on the record to the defense counsel, I bet if I answer that, you're going to kick me under the table again, aren't you? Things like that are exhilarating and fun and make deposition practice fun, I think. Um, and obviously, as you mentioned before, the counterexample of, well, I didn't know about this really bad fact. That's a problem and I don't want to deal with it right now. I don't know how to object or I don't want to draw attention to it. I want to take a break, but if I take a break, it's going to draw more attention to it. Those are um, the sort of split-second decision-making that's sometimes required in deposition I find stressful, when it's my client especially. I am guessing that the defense expert whose report was written by the lawyer, that was not in your outline. It was not in my outline, no. So can you talk a little bit about how being in the moment and staying present is important versus staying on script? Yeah, so I almost never take notes during a deposition. And I know that some lawyers do, maybe most lawyers do. Maybe I should be doing that, but it doesn't work for me. I don't have the cognitive ability to listen to the question and adapt and think on my feet while I'm taking notes. What I prefer to do is read the record after the deposition and maintain my focus on the witness and the witness answer so that I am capable of thinking on my feet. Maybe if I was smarter or quicker, I could take notes and listen to the witness answer, but it doesn't work for me. 
So when, when I see people taking depositions and taking a lot of notes, I always wonder, how do you do this? How do you, how can you have it both ways? Do you have a practice or preference in that? Because this is not a visual medium. People can't see my big grin as you're talking right now. And the reason I'm getting a big grin is because this is an emperor's have no clothes moment for me. I've always felt self-conscious about not taking notes at depositions. And when I have taken notes at depositions, I get distracted and I don't do a good job in asking my questions. I like having a paper outline because I'm old school. I like sometimes interlineating like, oh, I need to return to this or something to remind me not to get distracted as I go down the rabbit hole of being present. Mm -hmm. But the idea of taking notes has always resonated in my mind. There is a professional taking notes here. This professional is putting down a single word that's being said in the room. And oftentimes there's a video of it too. What are my notes going to add to this other than follow up on this, do discovery on that? I might make a note to trigger myself to do something, but simultaneous notes from a deposition, I completely agree with you. And yet I've always felt bad about not doing it. Really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. No, 100%. Absolutely. I totally get that. I don't understand how people do it and maintain their presence. And I know some people can. I'm not one of them. I'll go back and read the transcript and mine the transcript for uh, discovery items that I need to follow up on or initiate. But I like to listen to the answer. Well, and speaking in a very candid way, you strike me as somebody who focuses on being in the moment and being present, which I think for a lot of us is a challenge. I think so, yeah. Switching gears a little bit to the concept of fighting smarter and not harder. And here, when I'm thinking of this as a concept with Jedi, you oftentimes see a single Jedi taking on many, many people. And if you engage in battle with each one of them, you're going to get exhausted. Are there ways that you have found to be and I'm not completing my thought, but oftentimes it is a plaintiff's lawyer or a small scrappy firm up against a large opposition. Have you found ways to engage in litigation and fight smarter instead of harder? Yeah. And I'm going to borrow from and riff off of your show notes or outline here, because you mentioned in your outline dealing with a 40 page meet and confer letter sent by defense counsel and whether or not you're going to agonize over every sentence in it or just pick up the phone and call that defense counsel and say, what do you really want? And that sort of got me thinking when I'm seeking discovery and I want to move to compel every last request for production, every last interrogatory and in complex products case, maybe there are hundreds of interrogatories. There are hundreds of requests for production. My uh, pedantic this sort of sometimes obsessive instinct in litigation is to do to be the person writing that 40 page meet and confer letter because i think this is what i'm supposed to be doing i need to do follow up on every one of these when in reality it's maybe not a way of fighting smart i think as i've aged within the practice and come back to the practice after several years away from it i'm more able to prioritize think about and prioritize what do I really need here and can I send a two or three page meet and confer letter or make a phone call and do a, a simplified meet and confer rather than writing a another treatise to a defense firm knowing that 
they don't care because they're all getting, for the most part, getting paid by the hour and they don't mind. They'll assign another associate to it and build a case more. And it's not a way of fighting smart against well-funded defense firms and well-funded defendants. It's interesting you say that. I have had conversations with the defense where the response, and this is on the phone or in person, has been, look, we've been instructed to work this case hard. So what I need from you is some engagement because I'm light on hours. Really? Yeah. I've never heard that. That's really interesting. Yeah. I I mean, it may come across in different ways, but the takeaway is, oh, I see. You need to battle for a while in order to justify the file being in your hands. I recognize that it's not efficient for me to battle, but it is efficient for me to give you what you need in order to be able to get the case done. So I'll engage in some battles, even though that's not my, my nature. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. I suspect that many times, but I've never had a defense attorney to say it. And like I said, it's, you know, typically phone or person. You're, you're not going to see it in, in a written communication. Oh yeah, of course not. Yeah. In the smarter, not harder category, have you ever used the Sunshine Act or Freedom of Information Act to get at things so that you don't have to get it from a, somebody who's digging their heels in and refusing to give it to you? Yeah, I have used FOIA in the past in cases against government entities, and FOIA can be a mixed bag. Sometimes you get a page of heavily redacted nonsense back, and sometimes you get a gold mine. So in cases where it's applicable, any case against a government entity, I think the cost benefit of Sunshine Act, California Public Records Act, Freedom of Information Act requests, it takes no more than 10 or 20 minutes to to make the request. And it is kind of a crapshoot, but it's low cost and potentially high reward for doing doing that. And it's a necessity, of course, if there's a government entity defendant. I have a story here on this one where I went to take the PMK, the person most knowledgeable, in a street maintenance case, a a bad pothole. And the city attorney produced seven pages of documents related to my request. And I started taking the deposition with a bunch of information. And the city attorney got very frustrated. And what I learned is the city attorney's office doesn't speak to the folks who are responding to the Public Records Act request. Mm. And all this information that I had gotten that this attorney should have given me, but didn't, he was very upset when he learned that I had all this material that I had gotten through a Sunshine Act. And I proceeded to take a very good deposition because this person was not prepared for all of the material that I had. Yeah, it's nice when it turns out that way. And I think that that is a smarter, not harder situation mm-hmm. because I knew that the attorney didn't give me the stuff that he was obligated to give me, mm-hmm. but I already had it. So why did I care? Exactly. The other thing I was thinking about in Smarter Not Harder is just how fortunate we are to live in the technological era that we live in, in which I can do prosecute a complex products case. And instead of the defendant document dumping thousands or tens of thousands or maybe even hundreds of thousands of pages of documents in bankers boxes in the old school way in the you know, pre-internet era, I can get that stuff and I can really easily keyword search it. And one of the really most obvious, easiest ways to work smarter and not harder in litigation as a small plaintiff's firm is to be really good at knowing what the keywords are and what tools are available to keyword search, big document productions to focus on 
what's really necessary instead of hiring a team of paralegals or associates to, you know, go through everything and mark it up the way. In the pre-internet days that I can still remember when I was a paralegal at a large firm, we went through the documents and took notes on them and flagged what we thought was privileged and flagged what we thought was hot and then are not hot. And the associate would review it and there were just the the number of hours that go into that kind of thing. So I think document review is an era, as an area in which uh, technology really benefits us as plaintiff's attorneys. I think that's a, a good add-on in terms of fighting smarter, not harder, making sure one masters technology. I think we would be remiss if we overlooked a reference to AI at this point. Mm-hmm. And I have yet to really dig into how it's going to impact the legal profession. Mm -hmm. I know that people are worried about the development of AI and how fast it is moving and that it will eliminate jobs. Mm -hmm. I think the takeaway that I've had from my limited interaction is it may reduce the number of people needed to do the same amount of work. Mm -hmm. So the idea of being able to take medical records and a police report and template demand packages and giving it to a sophisticated AI, it won't be ready to go out the door in terms of a draft that an AI can produce, but it certainly will get something that is very much closer. And one may be able to have 50 cases handled by one person, whereas before 10 cases could only be. Yeah, it's really interesting. You probably know more about this than I do, but I will say I have a litigator friend who participated in some kind of trial or pilot program involving uh, AI-assisted legal research. I don't know if it was Lexis or Thomson Reuters or someone else, but he tried it out and it wrote a research memo for him in whatever, 15 seconds. And uh, it was like not bad. It was a starting point for him to flesh it out and create something that it was a huge time saver, basically. So I don't know, have you tried any of those pilot programs for AI-assisted research? I haven't done anything with the AI-assisted research. I have played around with the idea of uploading past columns that I've written to AI to then see if it can, in essence, ape my style for production. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Was that successful? It does a decent job. But bringing it back home in terms of the fighting smarter, not harder, and also reducing fears. In the world that you're talking about, the document review 80,000 pages of documents in a warehouse with people flipping through it. It was a huge hour work generator. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people back then were probably fearful. Uh, I'm, I'm going to lose my job. I won't need, be needed in the same way to do document review now that there's all this optical character recognition and, and digitization of documents. Mm-hmm. And I think what we've seen is there's still a requirement for people. It's just shifted in terms of what they do. Mm-hmm. And so with the AI piece, instead of the sky is falling, the idea of, okay, we will now be able to do more with less and we'll be able to shift the way people work and I think it'll all be fine. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I've played around with chat GPT a little bit just for the fun of it. And uh, I think I asked it to write a romantic comedy based on the Cthulhu mythos. What I got back convinced me that we're not anywhere near a Skynet moment. I think it's a long ways from achieving sentience. And for those young people out there, Skynet is a reference to Terminator 2 with our former governor, Arnold Schwarzenegger. You you can look it up. 
I think this is a good segue though, into the concept of knowing one's fear and being able to face it in handling cases. Have you have moments and, and I don't mean to be too personal on the concept, but have it, you had moments where you have had to face your fears? Oh, absolutely. One of the most salient fears for me in the context of handling uh, mass tort cases involving typically dozens of different plaintiffs and living in different jurisdictions is, did I miss a statute of limitations? I have clients in 20, 30 different states with different statutes and potentially even different causes of action. Did I calculate the statutes of limitation correctly in every one of these states or did my co-counsel do it? And can I rely on my co-counsel to tell me what it is? And just the, I don't know why that's particularly salient for me. I think it's because blowing a statute is such high consequence event as a plaintiff's lawyer. That is something that is a source of great fear historically. And just thinking, what is the statute of limitations on breach of express warranty in Mississippi the same as it is in California? Did I spend enough time researching it and understanding it? Or did I get, you know, the five second answer from the attorney co-counsel there? And is that correct? And just, it's easy to agonize over things like that sometimes. Did you allow your fear to paralyze you? Mm, No, but it is the kind of thing that I would worry about. Yeah, I think that that's one of them. I can talk about non-litigation fear. On a personal level, I had a lot of anxiety about being a guest on your podcast. And I think that I may have hemmed and hawed a little bit a couple of weeks ago and asking Nikki, what's the topic? Because it's an unfamiliar setting for me. It's outside of my comfort area in practicing law. It's related to the practice of law and I can talk about the practice of law, but the thought of embarrassing myself or embarrassing you or embarrassing the law firm that I've just started working for six or seven months ago produces a lot of anxiety. It's different. And I I was talking to my girlfriend about this uh, a couple nights ago. I remember telling her, I would rather walk into an expert deposition, whether it's my expert or a defense expert, unprepared, knowing almost nothing about the case and knowing that I can take this deposition because I've been doing this for 20 some years. That is much less anxiety producing than the thought of coming on this podcast, which seems bizarre because this is not an attorney-client situation involving the outcome of a case. So it doesn't add up mentally, you know, the, the source of the anxiety or the source of the fear doesn't really add up, but it is what it is and it's, it's reality. So, and my way of dealing with the fear or anxiety of being a podcast guest is to voluminously research the topic. So I ended up going down a rabbit hole of fan-made Jedi ethos, Jedi code, reading all about what is the basis of the Jedi code? What does it mean? so that I wouldn't be blindsided by a question about the Jedi ethos, which seems marginally insane to go down a rabbit hole to be that prepared. But we all have our individualized anxiety-producing events. But expert witness deposition on a case I know almost nothing about, yeah, I can do that. I could do that tomorrow. I'll read about the case for a couple hours. I know what to do. It'll be fine, which seems perverse and backwards. But that's the thing that struck me about the unpredictability of fear sometimes and how individualized it can be. I think you've done something just beautifully right now by bringing that forward. And the reason I say that is in terms of knowing one's fear and facing it, sometimes facing it is the articulation and letting people know what might be holding you back. 
I would have had no idea about your anxiety on coming on the show because of your way of handling questions and just the natural way that you approach the conversation. You don't show that at all. And I wonder to what extent the ability to articulate it on air and say, you know, this is how I'm feeling is a way of helping to disseminate and reduce the fear. Yeah, absolutely. And I got in that state of mind by reading your summary of your fears related to jury selection in the outline. And that got me thinking on this track of what am I afraid of? How do I talk about it? Does it matter if I talk about it? What dissolves the fear? So your story or your experience with jury selection and the fear that that can produce got me thinking in those lines, I think. And I think that piece, and to shed light on it, jury selection, I don't tend to have a lot of fear until I am in the moment. Meaning the lead up to things, I'm getting organized. I tend not to stress all that much. But when I was a rower, you know, when you're locked into the starting block, that was the moment that my heart palpitation happened. When we're picking a jury, when the judge says, you know, Mr. Cooper, would you like to question the jury? That's when I get stressed. And the technique I learned for that was through you know, the Jerry Spence Trialers College. It's this idea that you don't fight your emotions. You embrace them and sometimes articulate them. And so as I worked at a panel, one of the suggestions was, well, this has always been fear-inducing for me. Tell the jury. I'm getting up right now and I am terrified. And I'm telling you that because this is not my natural state. I like putting on the show. I like working with my client. But the idea of asking 75 people questions is terrifying for me. And I share that with you because I know that for some of you, this is also terrifying. Yeah. And in doing that, it allowed me to reduce my fears. I now love jury selection. It's my favorite part of the case. But a part of it is by embracing that fear. Well, that makes perfect sense. And your approach to it is not only good for you as a human being and good for you and your enjoyment of the trial, but it's also probably great for the case because the jury wants to know that they're dealing with human beings. And I think if we're, and the caveat here is uh, I, have, I have very little trial experience, but I know enough to know that uh, from, from various focus groups and limited involvement in jury selection and having been in voir dire as a potential juror myself, I know they want to, they want to know that you're not in litigation persona with a mask on from start to finish. They want to deal, have a relationship with a human being. And that seems like really your approach to jury selection and facing your fear seems very spot on. Well, and, and I think that wearing that mask is draining. Yeah. And being able to set it down and be a human and not feel like you are putting on a persona is so freeing that, that when that moment occurs, your chances of being able to engage with that jury in a way where they get it goes up dramatically. Absolutely. And I'd expand that into kind of across the boards. Being candid, being direct is far easier than wearing the mask. Absolutely. But far more terrifying. Yeah, it is. At least initially. Because I have a really as you've noticed, really well-cultivated litigation persona that I can turn on or off at deposition or networking events, which I typically dread because I'm on the introvert spectrum and uh, I typically dread that kind of thing. So I do definitely have a persona for dealing with uh, sort of networking situations or 
various things that happen in the practice of law. And it's interesting to move in and out of it and see how it affects our uh, mental health and well-being and enjoyment of the practice. I have an approach as well as far as the networking side, and that is having a partner like Marianne. Being able to go into an event with somebody who is just so engaging is far easier than doing it myself. It's funny, we were friends for years before we were a couple, and she was somebody who I would go to events with because I knew if I went into a room with her, I wouldn't have to talk. So talk on the concept of a practice, not perfection, in the area of the law. I think in terms of case selection, there's always something to be learned, and you're never in a perfect state of knowing all of the factors that you have to consider in deciding whether or not to accept a new case. To me, it's always been an area where I feel like I can, I can learn something and know that I'm not perfect and still know that I'm doing a good job by applying all of my experience as a human being and my knowledge about the law and the legal system to talking with a potential client about pros and cons of the case and learning to understand what the client's goals are. That's one area that I consider to be definitely practice and not perfection. I can't think of anything in my experience as a lawyer that I would say I have perfected. I don't know that anyone can make that claim. I know that there are people who are very good at specific areas of the practice. Perfection is a a pretty elusive target in litigation, I think. I agree with you. And I think that anyone who believes that they've become perfect is someone who is going to learn a tough lesson in short order. And I think that the problem that a lot of people have, a lot of people who get drawn to the law are perfectionists. And their belief is that there's some form of imposter syndrome, that somebody else is doing it better. And therefore, I must not be far enough along. And being able to let go of that and recognize that everyone is imperfect in their own way and that one does one's best. And when one does one's best, one will get the outcome. Yeah, I think that's a a good attitude. I wish I had had that attitude as a younger lawyer. As a younger lawyer, I was far more pedantic and far more focused on being right. And I think fortunately with age, I've succeeded in recognizing and shedding, not all of it, but shedding a lot of that ideology or that mindset. And uh, I guess they say good judgment comes from experience and experience comes from bad judgment. And there's a lot of truth to that in litigation. That's well said. Anything else that you would like to share as far as thoughts of how approaching the law from a Jedi perspective can improve outcome? I noticed that you made a reference to anger and the role of anger for a Jedi And you gave an example in your show notes or outline about a uh, really angry defense attorney in closing argument. And that got me thinking about the role of anger. And actually, I had to make some notes on this because I didn't think I could express it coherently. I can see how anger is disabling and counterproductive in litigation, but I can also see how anger, especially about anger about some injustice in the world or injustice that was done to our client can be a really strong motivator. So it got me wondering, what is the role of anger in the Jedi slash Buddhist, Taoist sort of, any way you look at it, a worldview, and what is the role of anger in litigation? And I'm also curious about this because I've noticed in the past that sometimes when I used to interview young associates or paralegals, the people who have a strong sense of justice and who are in the law because they want to do justice often 
have more energy or more stamina or last or survive in litigation longer or are just tougher in litigation because they have some moral compass driving them forward and this desire to, whether it's cyclist rights or whether it is gender or racial equality or environmental litigation or anything, the people who have some, whether it's pre-law school or not, having some anger about injustice in the world seems to me to be partially related to success in litigation. And I'm wondering how we determine like when and what types of anger are too much are counterproductive and what types of anger are not. And I read something in Tricycle, a Buddhist magazine, about anger when I was thinking about this, and I just want to read it if it's okay. Absolutely. The author is Tanisara. It's from an article called Don't Worry, Be Angry in Tricycle in 2017. And this author says, quote, anger is traditionally thought to be close to wisdom. When not projected outward onto others or inward toward the self, it gives us the necessary energy and clarity to understand what needs to be done. If we prematurely condemn or repress anger because we think it unworthy to feel, then we will fail to transform it. The fullness of its embodied energy will remain unavailable to us. We won't be able to protect what needs to be protected. We will let what is most precious slip away. And that, I think, may be relevant to a sort of Jedi approach to how we think about what we're doing in the law, what we're doing in the world. So I'm wondering if like, that resonates with you and your practice and how do you know when anger is, when there's too much anger or not enough anger in your approach to your practice? I'm smiling because I find that reading that you just gave very powerful and I'm trying to balance it against Yoda's quote of anger is the path to the dark side and was considering some sort of jab in there of, you know, nice comment about anger there, Darth. Yeah. I think for me, as somebody who has historically had anger issues. Anger has been my go-to place. And part of it is because my anger can terrify people. It has been a tool to dominate and oppress. And so I've had to work to, to dial that back because it, it has negative side effects. It is a useful tool in very rare occasions, but it, in many ways is like a nuclear weapon. So for myself, I would say passion and anger can have an overlapping line. And I think passion for doing right, passion for doing justice. The lawyer who both Marianne and I worked for years ago, a fellow named Kevin Lancaster, used to talk about the justice bone. And he would only hire people who, in the interview process, exhibited that justice bone. And it's something that has resonated with us as we've gone forward because the people who are most likely to succeed, we have found, have that. And the question is, is it anger or is it passion or is it a blend? And I think if it goes too far into the vitriol, then we do see that path to the dark side issue. Yeah, it's a really interesting slippery slope or a continuum of productive anger or passion versus dark side Sith Lord anger. And I've been on multiple points of that continuum in my personal life and in my practice. And I can relate to being an angry person, both personally and in my practice. And I find it really tricky to navigate, but I also don't want to give up my anger about things happening in the world. And if we don't have anger about certain things happening in the world, whether it's disregard for cyclist rights to the planet being gradually destroyed through various forces that we don't like, what do we have? 
I feel like anger is a source for social change. And I guess I have to say I'm not completely on board with the Yoda approach to anger is a direct pathway to the dark side. I may have to take some issue with Yoda. As much as I love Yoda and the the Jedi mythos, there's something to anger which is nebulous and can be useful. I see where you're going with that. It's a complex and um, interesting discussion and a complex thing to think about. Well, with that as a backdrop for our, our thoughts, I think that this might be a wise place to conclude. Except that I haven't asked you one important question, which is, as Jedi lawyers, what are the ethics of us using our powers to levitate and move objects around a conference room during a mediation in order to terrify defense counsel? Do you typically do that, or is, is, is that frowned upon? I think it is more acceptable than anger. Okay, fair enough. And one that I'll have to remember to use the next time I'm in one in person. Zoom has kind of made that a little harder. I don't have the same powers over the internet. Fair enough. Well, thank you, Ken, for being here today. Thanks for having me. And thank you for listening today. Please email us at podcast at coopers.law with questions, comments, feedback, and any suggestions you have about your practice as a Jedi lawyer. Like what you heard? Share us with a colleague and leave us a five-star review on your podcast platform of choice. To all of you doing justice out there, happy hunting. <laughs>